The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 1, 21 to 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin and I'm one of the pastors here. I do ask that you uh, bear with me a little bit, maybe help me out, maybe pray for me this morning. My voice is uh, a little worn out, so I got a chance to brag just a little bit. My son qualified for the Iowa um, State Wrestling Wrestling State Tournament yesterday, and so we got to go to Des Moines and watch him wrestle, and uh, I screamed like a good father should, all right? That's what what happened, okay? I screamed, and I'm like, and I'm a professional screamer, okay? My, my daughter's like, screaming's your job, and your voice is gone. I'm like, I screamed really loud, all right, in this wrestling match yesterday. And uh, really proud of my son, but it, uh, then after the match, I was like, oh, oh, no, I have to preach twice tomorrow. And not only that, but our friends over at Sacred City Moline, our brothers and sisters over at Sacred City Moline are watching this video this morning. So pray that my voice, they don't have to like have subtitles on the on the sermon, all right? So uh, that's what's going on this morning. If you want to open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to pray, and we we will get after it. Father, we, we come before you right now, and we ask you to speak to us through your word. We are opening up your word because we value it. It is revelation from heaven. It is an unveiling of who you are and what you've done and who your son was and who your son is and what he has done and what he is doing. And so we open it and we open it expectantly this morning. We want you to speak to us. Father, I acknowledge my own weakness, not only the weakness of my voice, but the weakness of my mind, the weakness of my heart, the weakness of my flesh, Um, that I'm a sinful man. And um, it's amazing that you can speak through someone like me. And so um, I ask that you would do it. I ask that you'd think through my mind, speak to my vocal cords, that your people would hear your voice and not mine and not my opinions this morning. Would you open our eyes to see the mystery of the gospel, open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ and warm our heart through the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you do this to the end of your own glory being exalted among us, and as we see your glory, um, we get the benefit of enjoying it. And your glory and our joy is linked in a way that is deeper than we could possibly imagine. So as we glorify you this morning, Father, I pray that we would enjoy you as well. Um, We ask that you would do all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, how have you been enjoying our time so far in the book of Colossians. Yeah, a couple whistles, all right, a couple claps, all right, cool. I know I have been. Um, Again, so my son qualified for the state tournament this last weekend, and I was like, well, 
I still want to preach. So created a little bit of problem for me last night when I realized he started wrestling at 3 o'clock. His last match was about 8 p.m. last night. If he would have won that match, it could have been later. I was like, oh, oh, no. I was getting more and more worried. I was counting down the amount of sleep I was going to get last night. But I was like, I've got to get here and preach. I'm so excited about our time in Colossians. And I, I really do cherish and love the fact that I get to spend considerable time of my week studying the text, uh, reading scholars, praying for each one of you, and asking God to show up and show out during the preaching of the scriptures each week. And we believe when God's word is preached rightly, Jesus himself is the one speaking through the Holy Spirit to his church. And that's, that's a mystery for sure, but it's something none of us should ever take lightly. It's one of the reasons we value the gathering together on a Sunday morning is we believe God's here speaking. And it's really difficult as parents with sick kids and all the stuff that's going on to get here on Sunday morning. But we don't get here, you know, to give God something necessarily. We get here because we believe God's going to give us something week in and week out. That it's a gift to come before the giver and the creator and the sustainer of all things and have him speak to us through his word each week. So... Just to catch us up really quick, what we've seen the past few weeks, um, in verses 15 through 18, if you weren't here, now listen, I kind of think, I feel like the sermon on, chap on chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, um, that one, that text is pivotal for the understanding of the rest of this book. And so if you miss that sermon, I'm going to encourage you, go back and listen to chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. A couple of you said you've already listened to it two or three times. I went pretty fast, and it was pretty dense. And so it's a sermon that you could go back to and meditate on a couple different times. Uh, I, I can go back and listen to it and learn a thing or two. Okay, so that's how dense it was. Um, and, then, so it's, and what was that text about? It was all about the supremacy and the preeminence of who Jesus is as the Son of God. Now, we often think of Jesus in his humanity, who he was as a person, and we do a lot of sermons on that. We talk a lot about that. It's important to know who he was historically and what he did and what he said. But as you study that, one of the things you're going to find out is Jesus said he was the son of God. And he didn't mean that in some kind of, you know, mythic sense, some kind of uh, Greek God sense, like he's one of the son of the, God, son of the gods, plural or something. Uh, he literally was one with God. And then last week we even saw that it said he was filled with the fullness of God. So Jesus was fully God. And last week, Tyler touched on this a little bit, um, but Jesus in that text, he said, so first off, he's the creator and the sustainer of all things as God. And then last week he said, one of the things that he's doing is he's reconciling all things back to him. Now that all things needs to be highlighted because we've already seen it four different times in, in verses 15 through 18 that Jesus is restoring and reconciling all things. One of the reasons every Sunday morning we start this gathering off with for those of you who are ready for and you're longing for everything in our world to be finally made good, right, and true, we're tapping into this promise of Jesus. That Jesus isn't in heaven right now just saving souls. He's reconciling everything in creation that there are some things because of the fall of man, because of sin, that have fractured in the universe. The, 
our, our planet was not meant to be ravaged by fire. Our planet was not meant to have famines. Our planet was not meant to have earthquakes. We were not meant to be afraid of different animals, right? Like when you're hiking in the woods, there's, we went hiking in, in Colorado this summer and we look over and we saw a moose. Now listen, I know when you watch cartoons, moose are real cute. But when you see one, you feel like you just got transported to Jurassic Park. They are ginormous and they're meaner than bears. They kill more people than bears, right? They will stomp you and spit on your grave. They don't care about you. And they have ginormous automobiles basically on their head. That's how big their antlers are. You see this thing and you're like, and it looks at you. And if you come between it and its calf, you are in trouble, right? Now, we were meant to probably ride those things, right? But because of the fracture of creation, we are out of whack. And so we have to fear things in the animal kingdom. And we have, obviously we know humans are broken. The world is broken. But Jesus as he's on his throne right now, he's promising to restore all things. And it's one of the greatest promises of the gospel that one day we will get to be on this earth, a fully restored earth, united with heaven, and we will get to enjoy the beauties of creation fully restored, fully reconciled, okay? So that was last week a little bit with Tyler. And this week, we're going to learn that in that process of reconciliation that Jesus is doing, Jesus has reconciled the church on the cross through his body, and he's now renewing them in his likeness. So if I were going to summarize chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, this is how I would summarize it. <clears throat> Jesus, as the creator and sustainer of all things, is at work renewing all things in heaven and on earth. And here it is, even us, even us. That even us is what we're going to talk about this morning. Look at verse 21 with me. <clears throat> and you say, he's talking to me. Say that. Come on now. Listen, I know you, you're not used to be doing this, but come on, say that with me. And when he says, and you say, he's talking to me. There we go. Now we situated ourselves in the text. He's talking to the church. We can put ourselves there with him this morning, okay? With him. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, we're going to jump in. Just look at verse 21 first. This is, now you've already said, you've already said, spoke with me that he's talking to us, but then the stuff he said after that, we probably don't want to take ownership of because he says this, and you <clears throat> who once were alienated and hostile in mind. Now this is the human reality outside of Jesus, or we could say the human reality before Jesus. We're going to see three things about hum humanity here because of the fall, because of what Adam and Eve, our original parents did, and what's been passed down through our bloodline ever since, the human propensity of sin, right? We don't teach our children to do wrong. They got that figured out at birth. We teach them how to do right, right? 
So he says three things about our human condition. Number one, he says we're alienated. What does that mean? That is really a a term that's used between husband and wife. Hmm. When a husband and wife get estranged from one another, when they become outsiders to one another, when there's something wrong with the relationship and they've pushed away from one another and there's a broken relationship between them. Okay, so to be alienated is to be kind of separated, to be to have a relationship broken. All right. Now, what's he say there? He says, two, you're hostile in mind, <clears throat> that there's a hostility there. Um, what does that mean? A host, hostile in mind. It just means to be at odds with one another. Right. Think about when you ha- have an issue with your spouse, there's a problem in your mind. You're hostile towards one another. Now, if you've only been married a few months I know this would never happen to you. Uh, But for those of us who have been married a while, you realize that when you are estranged from one another, when you've had a rough day or a difficult day or somebody didn't fulfill what they said they were going to fulfill, there's a hostility that comes into your mind with them, right? Well, Paul's saying here that same reality is happening between us and God, that we we are born estranged from God. God's a stranger to us. In a way, we are alienated from him, that our minds are at odds with him. I've never met a child born into the world that looked at their father and said, what does God want me to do, Father? What would God have me to do today? How can I obey you, Father? I just want to please the Lord in all I do. I've never met a child like that. They all have to be taught and raised and trained into that because their mind says, why is the world not revolving around me? Do you not smell that? That's me. Change me now right? Do you not know that I'm hungry, right? Child doesn't speak yet, just loses their mind. And what do we do as parents? We're trying to figure out this puzzle. Is it a poopy diaper? Is it food? Are they sick? What's going on? I don't know. It's a mystery, right? But the child just, boom, expects to be served. And that if that's not disciplined, right, we all grow up with that. And in a sense, all of us are like that. We live our lives like, God, why are you not recognizing me. Why am I not the center of the universe? Right? So our thoughts are not God's thoughts and our ways, therefore, are not God's ways. That we all, most of us, want to be autonomous. We want our wills and our ways. We want to be in control of all things. We want to be God. Does anyone ever want to be dependent on someone else? Right? We want to be in control. So that's kind of our, we have this hostility in mind that kind of pushes away from God and goes, I, I only really want you if I get into a situation that I can't handle myself, right? So there's this hostility Paul talks about. And then that leads to this doing evil deeds, right? <clears throat> so because of all that, so why do we lie? Why do we ignore God? Why do we love other things more than we love God? He's our creator. He's our sustainer. Why would we love money more than we love God? Why are we more concerned with our reputations and what other people think about us than we are what God thinks about us? Well, all of these things are evil deeds for sure. But Jesus says this, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. See, evil deeds come from evil thoughts in our minds, like hostility in mind, and they come from evil intentions 
in our hearts. So Paul's just kind of showing this from three different directions, that we have this, we are alienated from God. We have this hostility in our minds. We're probably hostile hearts towards God, right? And because of that, we do evil deeds. So there's this kind of trifecta going on there. Now, first off, uh, what does this tell us? He's speaking, he says, and you. He's speaking to the church. What does this tell us about the church? Well, it tells us we actually aren't a group of holier than thou. We aren't the best of the best who have pulled ourselves up by our moral bootstraps and just let everyone know from the beginning we've known the truth. And if you just follow us, you would get your act together. No, that's not what it says. We are not the best of the best. We are a gathering of natural, we're not, I'm sorry, we're not a gathering of naturally good and moral people. No, we are alienated, or we were alienated, hostile sinners who have been reconciled together by Jesus. Now listen, how should that reality change our posture to others? Well, it should create radical humility. That means the Christian can't look down their nose at anyone else. No one can feel superior because we did not earn our way into this community of people. We didn't pass some test that we qualified. It wasn't a DNA. They checked our DNA and, oh, yep, 70% holy. Come on in, brother. You passed the standard, right? Check our report card and see how good we are. No, no, no. We were brought in by Jesus, by the grace of Jesus. And now listen, we should remember that. Anytime we feel morally superior and we're looking down our noses at someone else, you've forgotten who's above you, namely Jesus. See, Jesus is the only one on the throne of the universe. He's the only one in a position to look down on everyone else. And when hit from his throne, what did he do? He came down to earth to reconcile us. He died for sinners, even though we were hostile in mind, even though we were his enemies. Now, <clears throat> I want us to think about this just a little bit. What does it mean to be reconciled? with someone who has done you wrong. Sometimes we can use this word reconciliation, especially if you've been in a church for very long, and you can kind of just dismiss it. What does reconciled even mean? Well, this is really important for us because in our because the world is broken and we're all sinners, that we need to understand this process of reconciliation. Think about it when someone has done you wrong, when someone has sinned against you, when someone has hurt you, what does it take to be reconciled with them? Right? One, they, they've, they've sinned against you. They've hurt you. Two, because of that, this makes them out. That person goes from friend to enemy. Right? Frenemy. That's what happens. Right? They, they, take, they transition in our minds. They, oh, I thought you were my friend. 
but you've hurt me, you've sinned against me. So now they've been transferred from the category of friend to the category of enemy. Now that can be spouse, that could be mom, that could be dad, that could be brother, that could be boss, that could be anybody. I'm just using two general categories of friend and enemy. But when, they, when someone, has sinned against, someone sins against us, we transfer them in our mind or in our heart from the category of friend to the category of enemy. Now, we, now we're like, oh, I gotta be careful with you. You might be opposed to me. You might be out to get me. I might have been, I, I might have assumed you were, you were my friend, but in reality, you're my enemy and you're trying to hurt me. So I have to be really careful around you. Now, what happens when you start thinking like that? That's a hostility, right? Now there's hostility between you and them. And what happens when there's hostility between two people? Naturally, what happens is a great chasm opens up between them. Can happen in your own home. Because of sin and hostility, you begin to distance yourself from them. You, some of us shut down emotionally. We become cold. They'll never do that to me again. Some of us become real hot. We go after the person. We want to confront them. We want to tell them how they did them wrong. And we want them to change and we're going to get loud and get after it. I won't tell you which one I am. <clears throat> now listen, this is a two-sided reality, right? Here's, a, here's a, what we need to think about. This issue, this reconciliation issue that goes on, something bad happens, hostility erupts, distance is created. In order to be reconciled, these two parties brought back together Action is required by both parties for reconciliation to happen. Now, what, what needs to happen? Here's what needs to happen. One, there is a real debt that needs to be paid. Every time, there's a real debt that needs to be paid, right? Action, or, uh, a criminal, we say this like this. If a, crim, if, you, if a criminal steals something from you and they get convicted and they're standing before the judge, a debt has to be paid. The, the judge will say this. He owes a debt to his society, right? That there's a human debt out there. You've taken something from human solidarity. You've taken something from society and you have to pay that back to society. Same thing goes in our interpersonal relationship. Somebody steals from you, you know they can't just walk up to you and go, oh, my bad, and walk off. You expect to be paid back, right? You expect to be restored, whatever it was that was taken from you. Someone sins against you, you expect that they have to pay something back in some way. And the size of the debt is really determined by the size of sin, right? If you bump into somebody in line, you just, oh, I'm sorry. But you even recognize there, you've ever been bumped into and you look over and they go, they just keep walking, right? What's going on? There, we have a recognition. There was a debt. If you bump into somebody, there's a debt. Now the it's a small debt, but what, what's it require? Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. That's all it requires, right? Somebody cuts you off. What do you want? I'll tell you what I want. I just want to see this. My bad. That's all I want to see. Oh, I didn't see it. My bad. That's all I want to see. I don't want to see, I don't want to see, you know, one finger. That's what I don't want. I don't want to see because then the debt just got compounded and I have a truck and I might, no, I'm just joking, but, right? So the size of the sin, right? Right? requires that, you know, shows you how big the debt is. 
we, we all know, like a, a sexual sin against you, there's a bigger debt there, right? There's a bigger debt there. There's something where you're violated, there's a bigger debt that needs to be paid there. Okay, now, so first off, in the reality of this reconciliation, there's a debt that has to be paid when you're broken, when you're in broken relationship with somebody. Two, because of the debt, there's animosity there. They've hurt me. They've sinned against me. This animosity needs to be healed. For reconciliation to happen, a person has to go from the enemy category back into the friendship category, right? There's got to be a transition back. So, and you know, we know this with our spouse, this happens all the time. We're constantly, every hour, sometimes going back and forth between categories, right? Friend, enemy, friend, enemy, friend, enemy, right? And we're just constantly confessing and owning our sins and giving grace to one another, right? But if a person refuses to acknowledge that, and, and then we, there's a reality that you cannot be reconciled with a person who does not acknowledge the debt that's there, doesn't acknowledge even their own fault there, Right? And so there's this animosity between us because one's a friend and, one, and one's an enemy and we're opposed to each other. And now here's the third thing that needs to happen. The distance between us has to be crossed. The enemy and the friend, somebody's got to cross the chasm and come together and confess their sin and start the conversation and start beginning to work on the process of reconciliation in order to restore the intimacy of the relationship. Now, one person always has to go first. Rarely do both people turn around at the same time and go, we're both wrong or whatever. Usually we want the, restore, the one who's broken, uh, sinned against the person or broken the covenant to, to, to lead in humility and go confess their sins, right? Now, here's the reality. In human relationships, reconciliation doesn't always happen, does it? It doesn't always happen. There's, there's a myth out there that we should be able to be reconciled to anyone, but that's not reality. See, the sinner needs to repent and own their sin and confess it and make amends. But this, some, some sinners don't want to, right? Some don't care. Some are bent on their own way. They don't care that they stole from you. They don't care that they hurt you. They don't care that they victimized you. They just continue in their wrongdoing. Now, so, so that means if that happens, we cannot be reconciled to that person or that party. Now, the second thing needs to happen, for, if that does happen and the person does say, hey, I sinned, can, I confess it, I own it, please forgive me, you know, I'm willing to, whatever it is, make amends. Then the one who's been the victim, the one who's been sinned against, needs to offer forgiveness. And forgiveness must be given by the one sinned against in a way that heals the animosity, that brings the other person into the friendship category and go, I recognize that you hurt me. I'm going to confess. Yes, you did hurt me. I accept your apology. I accept your repentance. Thank you for doing that. I forgive you. And that heals the animosity. You no longer see them as your enemy. Now, here's the third piece of that. We all know that on the size of the debt, depends on the size of the debt. Trust must be gained or restored before we can move that person from the enemy category back into the friend category. Um, it, it, you know, by this, whatever, however they've sinned against you, right? Um, so reconciliation is a difficult process. We should all recognize that. It requires the 
the work of both parties. You cannot be reconciled to a person who refuses to repent and refuses to change. You can't be reconciled to them. You're literally, by trying, you can pursue it a little bit, but by trying, you're literally inviting chaos into your family. You're inviting chaos into your life. You're welcoming a victimizer back in and you'll forever be the victim. Now, what's interesting is in the Old Testament, God had a process, a ceremony for sinners like us to be reconciled to him. And it involved two goats. Now, it's a little weird. A modern ears, this is going to really, this is a little weird. But here's what happened. They would bring a goat. There would be a, what's called a sacrificial goat or a scapegoat. Many of us have maybe probably heard that term, scapegoat, right? And the sacrificial goat, what, the, what would happen is the priest would lay his hands on the sacrificial goat and he would pronounce the sins of the people. And by a way of analogy and a way of transfer, as he confessed the sins of the people onto the sacrificial goat, the sins of the people were being transferred to the goat and then the goat was killed, now, what was happening in this process is this, 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 the debt that, the, that humanity owed to God because of their sin, that debt was being paid by an animal. That mankind deserved to die because of their rebellion and their sin against God. But instead of mankind dying, an animal would be killed in, so that the debt was paid there. But here's what interesting, what's interesting. The, uh, there's still animosity between them. But what happened with, was with the scapegoat, the priest would do the same thing. He would confess the sins of the people on these two goats, and the scapegoat would be sent off into the wilderness. Okay? So one goat paid the debt, and the other one purified the victimizer. It took the sins of the victimizer into the goat, and those sins left. They were separated from the people. They were driven far away. And what this did was it emptied the hostility between God and man. So the debt was paid and the hostility was taken away outside the camp. Right? Now this is by way of analogy. Now we, we might look at that and we go, that's so archaic. That's so weird. Okay. It is a little archaic. It is a little weird, but compare that to our culture's way of reconciliation. What do we have? How are, what does our culture go to when we need to be reconciled? I'll tell you, we don't have a way. When we have a public situation come up where somebody is put up as a sinner and their sins are exposed, what do we want from them? It looks like the public, we want to see them confess it. We want to see them go to counseling and we probably want to see them go to jail. But we have no promise to ever be reconciled and we have no problem to ever offer forgiveness or ever have that sin taking, taken away from them. So we need a process of reconciliation between God and between each other. We need something. Well, it's interesting here that Paul shows us something that happened in Jesus that was better than what happened with these two goats. But here, here's one problem with the old system. Goat was killed. Goat, sins were confessed in the other goat. They were taken off. And then what? Whoo, whoo, fresh slate. Fresh slate. All right, we can start over. Five minutes later, what happens? Sin. 
debt starts accruing again, right? This is a process that needed to be repeated over and over and over and over. But we, what we see here in Colossians is something new, that Jesus has reconciled us to himself. Here it is. Look, this is, this is something different. By completing both sides of the reconciliation problem, both sides, victim and victimizer. Jesus steps in the place of both the victim and the victimizer, and he takes this reconciliation problem in himself on the cross and deals with it. Now, I want us to, re to remind us, what do, what do you mean by that? He takes the place of the victim and the victimizer. Well, remember from a few weeks ago, Jesus was the archetype man. He was what man should have been at creation from, from the beginning, right? But we failed to do that. And so what Jesus does as the archetype man, as 100% man, is Jesus steps into the place of the sacrificial goat. Jesus steps into the debt that man owes and he's willing on the cross to absorb the sin of mankind in his body and allow God to kill him like they killed the goat. Jesus took that place and in his body absorbed the sin. He became the victimizer. Think about that. He became the murderer. He became the child molester. He became the alcoholic. He became the liar. Jesus became that on the cross. He absorbed the sins of mankind. And so it was the father's pleasure as Jesus becomes sin to crush Jesus. Why? He's dealing with the sin debt, the real debt that exists between us and God. Jesus pays it. But here's what's crazy. Jesus isn't just the archetype man. He's also God. So he's not just victimizer as man. He's, and I, I use this term, I don't like to use this term. It's, it's probably not a proper way to use it, but I, I'm, I'm gonna use it anyways. He's the victim. He represents the victim, the sinned against. I don't think God is a victim. I don't think God can ever be a victim. But, he, but God has been sinned against. He's the one who's been violated. He's the one who's been wounded. He's the one who's been hurt. And so Jesus is uniquely both sinner in this sense, never sinned, but becomes sinner, and he's the one sinned against in the reconciliation problem. And what Jesus does in this unique position of both being man and being God is Jesus uses his unique position to kill the hostility between the two parties. He steps between the parties and he says, man, I'll be you and I'll take your punishment. God, I'm always you and I'll take the wounds. He does both. Ephesians 2.16 says this, that why did he do it? To reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what Jesus has done between God and man, he's killed the hostility between the two parties. Now, what does that mean? Think about that. That means Jesus is the one who crosses the chasm that's opened up between us and God. Jesus Though he's the one who's been sinned against, he, he takes the form of a servant and humbly comes down to this earth, pays the sin debt, kills the hostility by turning hostile sinners into friends of God. Jesus is the one who does that all for us. He 
He's the only one who could do it for us because he's God and man. Now this, in short, is the gospel. It's the good news. If it's not, you're going to be blown away what he says here in, in, in the coming verse. Now, this is what I want to ask you. Now, let's look at verse 22. He has, this is Jesus. Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That's what he has already done. Jesus did that 2,000 years ago on the cross, that it is, past, it is a past tense reality that he brought reconciliation between God and man by stepping into the place, taking our punishment, okay? Here's the question I wanna ask this morning. Why has Jesus done this for us? Now, the common answer is because he loves us. We can even twist that around somehow to be righteous, our own righteousness and go like, oh, God just looked down at us and just wanted us so much. He just loved us. He just looked at these little creatures and just, oh, I'm just going to go down. That's not what he, that's not why. I mean, he did love us. He does love us. But there's something else. What was his purpose behind it? Why would God come down and die for his enemies? Die for people that were hostile to him, doing evil deeds against him. Why would he cross the chasm and, and literally absorb the debt and pay the debt that was there between these two unreconciled God and man? Why would Jesus step in and reconcile them? Well, look at verse 22b, the second half of verse 22. In order to, purpose statement, in order to present you, that's you in this room, that's everyone in Christ, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, what does above reproach mean? That means guiltless, no guilt. Look, before him. What? Jesus, the one who's been victimized, the one who's been sinned against, comes to earth, dies, destroys the hostility in order to perfect the victimizer and present the victimizer before himself as guiltless. A person who's been violated, willing to cross the chasm and die the death and pay the debt so that the, so the victimizer gets reconciled. What? In order to present us holy, blameless, guiltless before himself. You've sinned against me, but I'm willing to pay your debt so that we can be reconciled and my enemy can become my friend without anything on your part. Jesus lived a perfect life for us. Jesus died a substitutionary death for us. Jesus did that in order to present us holy, blameless, and guiltless so that we can have what we've never had before, the face of Jesus. We can be reconciled and look into the face of Jesus with no guilt, no fear of condemnation, no threat of death or, or, or uh, judgment against us. Christian, do you see how wonderful this promise for us is in Scripture here? 
Jesus has made us presentable to himself, presentable to God. And one day we will see him as he is. And one day our real eyes will look on the real face of Jesus without any fear. And we will get to kneel at the feet of him and look into his face and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that isn't because we killed it on earth. That isn't because we performed perfectly on earth. That isn't because we've worked our way back into reconciliation and we went to enough counseling and we've got enough, you know, we've read enough self-help books and we've cleaned ourselves enough that finally we're presentable to God. No, we are presentable to Jesus because of the work of Jesus. Now, I used to think that Jesus died to pay the debt of all my past sins. And I didn't know that he also paid for my present sins and my future sins as well. Now, what this, idea, what this does is it, kind of, it shrinks our understanding of the gospel. And it had some negative effects upon my relationship with God. The thinking went like this. And I don't know if I... I probably would have vocalized it, but you might not vocalize it. But here's the thinking behind it. I'm a, I owe God. I'm, a, I'm in debt to God because I've sinned against him. And when I confess my sins and I repent of my sins, he wipes the slate clean. I'm forgiven. God is pleased with me then, or at least he's no longer angry at me. The problem with this, of course, is like the people in the Old Testament, I am still a sinner. And so I can turn around from the altar and I still have pride in my heart. Or I can confess my sins and get up from my prayer time and get up from my Bible reading time and yell at my kids or yell at my wife. That I will sin very soon in omission or in commission and therefore I will once again fall out of favor with my God and God will be oh, displeased with me again. God responds to me kind of like a spouse responds to the other spouse who's had 20 years of the same old sin. Oh, oh, you forgot. Oh, again. Oh, you lost your temper. Again, right? <sighs> That's how God sees you. That's how God sees you in this truncated view of the gospel. Every time you sin, he's angry again. Therefore, reconciliation and hostility is always in jeopardy. I walk around my whole life. Is he mad at me or is he happy with me? Right? It's, it's the, <laughs> it's the, the, um, the daisy of the truncated gospel. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. See, if I asked you right now, is God pleased with you right now? What's his attitude towards you right now? How does he feel about you right now? You might immediately, if you're like me, immediately try to take your spiritual temperature and you scan back over the last day or so. Did I read my Bible? Did I yell at my kids? Did I look at porn? Did I lie, cheat, or steal? 
See, when you're doing that, you're missing a great reality of the gospel. Because of the work of Jesus being credited to you, God sees you as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Therefore, in Christ, God's attitude towards you is secure. He's happy. Listen, how can you have an intimate relationship with someone if you're always wondering, do they like me? Do they like me? What are they thinking about me right now? Because of Jesus, Jesus thinks you're wonderful. That statement right there should cook your noodle. Because of Jesus, Jesus thinks you're wonderful. Because of Jesus, God the Father thinks you're beautiful. He, God the Father sees you as holy. God the Father sees you as above reproach, guiltless, blameless. He looks at you and a smile comes across his face. No other religion on the planet offers this to a human being. This is good news. Now, what should our response to this be? Look at verse 23. So Jesus did both sides. You might be saying, well, what do I have to do? If Jesus lived for me and Jesus died for me, he took the place of man, he took the place of God, he reconciled us together in his body of flesh on the cross, what do I do? I just sit back and keep sinning? No, you don't just sit back and keep sinning. You will keep sinning. But what you do is believe this thing called the gospel. Look at verse 23. If indeed you, here it is, continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, that has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and under earth, which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, here, this is so interesting. Paul is not, he is not worried one iota about being novel. He doesn't have our culture's fascination with the new, the upgrade, the 2.0, the deeper teaching. There's no secret here. Paul says the life of the Christian begins from, with the gospel and it never moves on from the gospel. The same thing that made you a Christian keeps you a Christian. It's the gospel. Now, he's, what, what does that mean? He's talking about repentance and faith. That's our part of the gospel equation. Jesus lives for us. Jesus dies for us. Jesus reconciles us. Jesus sends the spirit to us. The spirit awakens us, gives us faith. We see our sin. Oh, I am actually hostile. I actually do have thoughts that are hostile to God. I actually do evil deeds. I, I actually am alienated. I repent, Father, for that. And as my as I'm repenting, it's like the priest putting his hands on the goat. My sins are being credited to God the Father, or to God the Son, and they're going to the cross and being reconciled. And, and so I am accepting the work that Jesus Christ has done. I'm repenting and I'm believing. That's how a Christian responds. Now, here's what's interesting. The Christian never graduates from that, never moves on from that. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 Theses to the, to the door of Wittenberg Castle, this is what he said. He said, the, Christ, the first one was this. The, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be re repentance. 
The Christian never graduates from repentance. Why do we confess our sins every Sunday together? We never graduate from it. The whole life of a Christian is one of repentance. But what often happens is people repent of their sins and then they move on to something else. They think repentance and faith in the gospel was a one-time thing they did at an altar or at a youth camp or something. See, they see repentance as the doorway into Christianity. But then you move on to interesting things. You move on to theology. Let's go deeper into theology. I want to learn a lot of words with ology at the end. Right? You, especially eschatology. Let's get really serious about the end of the world. I want to know what the Bible says about that. I'm not dissing theology. I love theology. I love eschatology. I love all that stuff. But you don't move away from repentance. Now, here's the other thing. Okay, I'm, a, I'm saved now. God's made me new. And now all of a sudden I see, have new eyes and I see the injustice all over the world. And so now I want to get really passionate about social justice and fixing all the ills of society. And so a church pushes away from repentance and faith and goes all in on social justice and they lose the gospel. Or morality. This book has got a lot of laws. It's got a, tells you how to do it, how to be a good person, how to love Jesus, how to walk, how to do everything right. So a church steps away from repentance and faith and just starts preaching the truth, dear God, brother, whatever, whatever, whatever. They start slamming from the pulpit and it's all about morality. And we come to church every week to feel like, oh, 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 Okay, I need to do that too. I need to do that too. I need to do that too. And we push away from repentance. And as we push away from repentance, you move away from the hope of the gospel. And as you do that, you move away from God. And as you push away from repentance and faith, your heart gets cold, your heart gets hard. Listen, this is what Jesus meant when he told the religious leaders of his day the, the religious leaders who were killing it with tithing, killing it with all the laws, killing it with morality. But what did he say? He said this, listen to this. Prostitutes and sinners are closer to the kingdom of God than you. He's saying, see, prostitutes and sinners, they recognize they're sinners. Nobody thinks that's moral. They know there's, there's a debt. They know there's a gap. There is the chasm between them and God. But the morally righteous, they think, oh, I've already got that taken care of. Me and God, we're tight. See, if you think you're good, I'm closing right here. If you think you're good, if you see the sins of others as big, and yet your own sins are very small, if you see yourself as really good at recognizing everyone else's sin, but then when you're confronted with your sin, you get defensive. You immediately become a lawyer. You argue, you blame. Well, what happened was, no, I said that because you said this. No, no, you said this. I remember it perfectly. You make excuses. You dismiss your sin as being the result of somebody else. 
There's, you have the, you have the problem. I'm not, I, it's not me. You, my friend, are shifting from the hope of the gospel. Repentance is not a bad thing. Repentance is a gift. When you've sinned, repentance is a gift. Don't treat it as a bad thing. Don't treat it like, oh, I messed up again. Yeah, you're gonna do that a million more times. And repentance is a gift. Repentance is a gift for reconciliation. So the life of a Christian is constant repentance. And that doesn't mean we're like moping around. (laughs) No, it's a gift. It's working out the gift Jesus has already accomplished for us. See, when we become foreign to repentance, our hope has shifted from the gospel to ourself. You are hoping in your own righteousness. You're hoping in your own morality. You're hoping in your own goodness. You're hoping in your own wisdom. You're hoping in your own ability to hold all your stuff together. Paul and Jesus both say to us, repent and believe the gospel. Don't move past it. Have you been reconciled? Absolutely you have. We work out that reconciliation on earth through repentance and faith. One day, we'll stand before the Father and repentance and faith will be a thing of the past and we'll see him with our eyes and we'll be in reality what he sees in us right now. (laughs) Holiness isn't a fiction. We'll be what he's made us to be now. We'll be that before the Lord in the future if you don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Now, last thing. Sometimes, we've already mentioned a little bit today, we can kind of get this shifted like, okay, hope of the gospel. That means I'm holding on to Jesus. So I can't never let go of Jesus, right? And many of us, if we're aware of our own weakness and our sin, it feels like we're holding on to Jesus by one finger. And that is often what it feels like when you're holding on to Jesus by faith. Barely hanging off a cliff and you got one finger. And that is our perspective a lot of times. But what I wanted you to see today, that if we think we're holding on by one finger, Jesus has actually got his other one around our back. He's got a firm grip. He's like, I've never lost a sheep and I'm not starting with you, (laughs) right? We're secure in his hands. Let me pray. Father, I come before you this morning and I repent of my sins and I thank you for the gift of repentance. I thank you for the reality of reconciliation. I pray that you would work this out in your body even now that We would confess our sins and we would receive the reconciliation, receive the gift that you've given us. And even that's vertical between us and you, but then even as we work it out between each other horizontally, that if we have something against our brother or sister, we would go and we would work it out with them as well. And you would kill the hostility and you would restore the relationship and you would bring healing. That the church would be an example of what reconciliation looks like because we have the God-man Jesus Christ who shows us exactly what it looks like. Father, now as we come to your table, we come to do what Jesus told us to do. We break the body that is, or we break the bread that is the body of Christ and we pour and 
drink the cup that is the blood of Christ. And even now we're remembering the cost of reconciliation. We're remembering the debt that was paid to reconcile us. And we eat this in expectation of the future and we eat this in hope and we eat this in worship this morning. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.